It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We got, uh, well, with Halloween coming up uh, this weekend, it's kind of a pre-Halloween show today. Uh, Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, Foster Hirsch, the author of Otto Preminger, The Man Who Would Be King. And before that, we're going to spend a couple hours talking about um, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, In the second hour, in the middle, we're going to talk about Hitchcock and the censors with uh, the author of a book by that name, John Bilheimer, will be joining me by phone. But first, we're going to talk about uh, a book about Alfred Hitchcock called... um, Simply, Alfred Hitchcock, The Legacy of Victorianism, uh, by Paula Morantz Cohen, who joins me by phone. Hi, Paula. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks. Um, Glad to be here. What is it about Alfred Hitchcock that, that we sort of associate him with Halloween and things that go bump in the night? Well, his films are very suspenseful and sometimes scary. Um. Not conventionally so always, but suspense. Uh, He was the master of suspense. In fact, that was one of his titles. And um, his films still stand up and can give you a really great scare. 
Well, Psycho, for example, is is iconic in the in the world of scary films and suspense. Um, but a lot of other films by Hitchcock were suspenseful. And then there was the whole TV show thing, which I've been watching uh, old reruns of the Alfred Hitchcock uh, television shows. Um, yeah, I have them near me, too. They're being rerun, and they're pretty good. I mean, they vary. Some of them he wrote and directed or directed and was involved in the in the creation of, and others he did not. But he's always the master of ceremonies on those shows, and it's amusing to watch him introduce them in his typical Hitchcockian way. And And how did that... Hitchcockian way come about um you know your book is Alfred Hitchcock the legacy of Victorianism and it, it talks about um actually uh his, his directorial career spanning from Victorianism to postmodernism. um how were films different at the beginning of his career versus toward the end of his career? Well, he grew up in London uh, in a lower-middle-class family, very uh, very uh, proper. Uh, he was uh, uh, Jesuit-trained, educated, and I, I don't think he ever lost that sort of prim and proper manner that we associate with the Victorian. And his first films were silent films, uh, British silent films, including one called The Lodger, which deals with the Jack the Ripper, or indirectly with the Jack the Ripper case, which is, continues, has always been a very um, important in British uh, horror uh, and remains an unsolved case. Um, anyway, his first films were silent, and um, he was brought to, uh, he, he obviously transitioned to sound when it came in in the late 20s, and then um, he was brought to Hollywood by David O. Selznick, uh, the, the great Hollywood producer. And um, he became uh, very much a Hollywood studio producer in some ways. In other ways, he never lost his signature um, uh, approach to film. And uh, his last films are uh, a little bit of a deviation because uh, the taste in film had changed by the time, by the 1970s, and they'd become either much more uh, dramatic uh, type uh, blockbuster films like the James Bond films or become more quirky. And uh, I think he felt a little bit that he needed to enter into that realm, although he never lost his, his particular profile as a filmmaker. And he... Um in in a lot of his films, he would show up for a cameo or something. How did that start? Um, I'm trying to think about what the origin of that was. Um, but uh, I think that he was very much about branding himself and his films. Um, I don't know that he was particularly, he was probably, uh, in some ways, he was a very shy man. Uh, but in other ways, he was very aware of marketing and advertising from a very early point. In fact, he began his work in film doing some advertising uh, work, uh, copywriting work. Um, but he, he began to realize that this 
uh, visual signature of himself in his films was something people liked and found fun to find him. I mean, I think the most amusing uh, example, I, I think he appeared in almost all his films, perhaps not his very earliest ones, but certainly uh, all his films once he came to uh, the U.S. But when he made Lifeboat, which takes place entirely on a boat, <laughs> um, he was a, with, a, with a limited number of characters, he had to find a way to put his signature in there. And he has one of the characters holding a newspaper that has a weight reduction ad and a picture of him in that <laughs> ad. And he was always on a diet. So uh, it was appropriate, and he was known for his rotund figure. So that's an amusing example of his insertion of his signature self into a film. Well, I remember seeing in one film he uh, gets on or off a bus. Yeah. And in another one, um, he crashes the cymbals in an orchestra. Yes. Uh, there is one in which he's sitting on a bus and he's being annoyed by a little boy, um, and <laughs> that's amusing. <laughs> uh, but he always has his poker face expression. And, of course, when he spoke at the beginning of Hitchcock Presents or the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, his TV shows, he spoke in this very macabre sort of voice, you know, low and uh, uninflected uh, with his uh, profile, uh, you know, outline. First there's the outline, and then he inhabited the profile with his body. I'm very, uh, I think, kitschy and imaginative use of himself. And sort of, uh, yeah, creepy, which goes with Halloween, of course. And, the, well, and that, that outline of, of him that he steps into, and that was a regular part of his television offerings, was, it, it became kind of a logo almost absolutely it was a logo it was as soon as you see that outline you know it's hitchcock and uh on that level his particular look which as he said himself and he went at the time was so one time he said that he never had won an oscar up to that point because um you know an artist is not supposed to be look like him but he was able to turn uh the way he looked which was certainly not what you would expect from, you know, a, a, a director who's sort of very uh, in, the, in the swim of things, but he was able to turn it into something very effective from a marketing point of view. And you mentioned that um, when you were talking about Lifeboat and, and the uh, weight loss ad, um, was did he diet uh, all the time? This is, I've never really heard that about him. He did diet, um, yes, and uh, but I don't think he was very effective. He loved food, um, and uh, he ate a great deal. And he was very much a a family man in many ways. Um, he had a wife and a daughter. Um, often they were pictured together. His daughter was in several of his films. She became an actress at least for a little while until she married and um, had a family of her own. And uh, he certainly, um, yeah, I, I think he was self-conscious about the way he looked at the same time that he exploited it for the purpose of uh, advertising. 
that that's interesting that he would be concerned about it yet be comfortable enough to use it even in an exaggerated way uh, to his benefit yeah it is interesting and i think that was the um sense in which he was a he was a showman of sorts and understood what would work um even if he might not have felt personally that he was happy about it but he had an incredible ability to understand the visual and what would work visually and how to pace a film and what would be scary and what would be effective um his films still stand up as i say and when i show them to my students they continue to find them fabulous. Um, you know, sometimes the special effects, they find a little cheesy, but for the most part, the films can still scare us. And Psycho, as you mentioned before, continues to be seen as the, you know, most frightening. <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of an iconic yeah. horror film, even though you don't think of Alfred Hitchcock as making horror films. The word you use is suspenseful, and, and I think that's a, a good way to look at his body of work. But that one just, it, it, it crosses over into a lot of different genres. That's true, and it is I guess you could call it a horror film. I never actually thought of it as a horror film. I think of it as a scary film. <laughs> but that's, I guess, a horror film. Um, but, yes, I think it's a little bit uncharacteristic in that respect. It is also a very, very innovative film because um, it is a film that kills off the star midway through. Janet Lee is the uh, victim uh, um, and even though Hitchcock blondes often are threatened in his film, to have a big star like Janet Lee killed uh, in the middle, it was quite a, a, a feat because that had never been done before. And it was almost like it cut a hole in the middle of the film. And Paula, you mentioned the bir you, you, the birds, and you were talking about some of the cheesy special effects. And and there's a scene where there are many many birds, and some of them were real, and some of them were animated. And although you might be able to tell that that's a doctored segment, it still worked pretty well. Well, that particular scene I think works really well when. Um, um, Tippi Hedren is sitting on a bench and the birds are collecting behind her. It's right. very, I mean, that has a horror effect, no doubt at all. But there are other scenes in which, in which the children are being pursued by birds and so forth that seem a little cheesier. But, you know, I don't think it really takes away from the film. It gives it a kind of a surreal look that is actually, I think, for, for some viewers, can feed into the effect, the horror effect. Those two films, The Birds and Psycho, are to me horror films. I don't know, I mean, if you yeah, call I, it. Yeah, I think, I, I think yeah. so. Um, Paula, I have to take a short break here, and I want to continue to talk about this because this is such a fun subject. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes? Certainly. All right. We'll be right Hello back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about Alfred Hitchcock with the author of Alfred Hitchcock, The Legacy of Victorianism, Paula Morantz Cohn. And she uh, joins me by phone. Paula, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. And sorry to make you sit through all that. That's fine. Thank you, Tom. Um, just before the break, we, you were talking about some of the scenes in uh, in The Birds, for example, one of Hitchcock's iconic films that we've sort of dubbed a, a horror classic, um, but certainly uh, fits into his body of work dealing with suspense. Um, and, and you were talking about some of the scenes, we were talking about some of the scenes looking uh, or being a little cheesy or some of the shortcuts that were taken in order to tell the story. And you, you thought that some of the scenes with the children running and the birds attacking them looked a little bit cheesy. Um, but yet some of these scenes um, still work and still hold up. And I, you had said, you had mentioned Alfred Hitchcock having an eye for what works. Do you think it was really about his skill as a cinematographer that was able to use some of these cheesy effects to help tell the story in such a way that, that they didn't come across as cheesy because he knew how quickly to cut or, you know, how, how to use it without overusing it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, this, the, the story, and it's perhaps not entirely true, that he did the storyboards for his films so carefully and saw the film in his mind's eye so completely that he didn't even, he often said, he didn't feel the need to, to make it. I mean, that was the boring part, that it was so carefully thought through in advance. And in fact, that was one of the ways in which he kept a producer like David Selznick out of his hair, is that he cut his film so carefully that there was no excess film to be used if the producer wanted to change something. But I do think that, I mean, that may be an exaggeration, but I do think that um, Hitchcock had a sense of the whole that was exceptional, like any genius who's able to really see the parts and put things together creatively in a way that will have a sense of, of, of its being necessary um, and, and, and that it will work. Um, and I, I think that's what you're referring to, and, and I think it's true that he could get away with effects that maybe nowadays would look, you know, would date him, uh, work because the film as a whole is so coherent. Well, yeah, and I, and I think there was a, that he had a sense for, or a gift, really, for saying, okay, we need to uh, show this happening, but the effect that we're using is a little cheesy, so let's only show it long enough to make the point mm. and get out so that people know what is supposed to be happening, but they don't dwell on the fact that it doesn't quite look real. That's true. And I, I also think it's 
artful. I mean, if you think about the stabbing scene in Psycho, for example, the knife never touches Janet Lee's flesh. And yet, uh, it is a horrific scene. I mean, I, I think it continues to horrify people who watch it, maybe because we don't see the graphic violence that you would see with the techniques that we have today. Um, you know, you see her, her, the, the blood going down the drain, you see the shower uh, head, you see her eye open, and you see the knife moving back and forth. And, and there's a silhouette of, in, in the beginning of that scene. There's sort of a silhouette of her in the shower curtain. And, and of course, you can't um, discount the, the music and, and the sound effects and the way that fit together. Now, Bernard Herman music has, is now so iconic, as you would say, because we, we, whenever we hear that, sound, that music, we think of that shower scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, those those violin stabs that you mm-hmm. know um, sort of evoke the notion that that the action is taking place, and um, and and without that sound, and and that's one of the things I think that made Hitchcock such a genius was really understanding the importance of every little element to pull a scene together and and make it evoke the emotions that that they do i agree and i think a lot has to do with his starting in the silent era because he couldn't rely on explanation um and uh speech in the way you know uh, was the case with talking pictures um and so he was able to tell stories visually much more effectively perhaps than later filmmakers could I mean, there's the beginning of Rear Window, for example, which has a panning shot of James Stewart with his broken leg and all the paraphernalia associated with his profession that tells us everything we need to know about him before the, the film even really begins. The book is called Alfred Hitchcock, The Legacy of Victorianism. Um, how does Alfred Hitchcock personify the legacy of Victorianism? Well, he uh, was born during the Victorian, the end of the Victorian era, which sure. uh, some uh, uh, listeners may associate rightly with the idea of Queen Victoria, a certain kind of straight-laced, prim and proper kind of thinking was associated with that era. Um, sex was, you know, very much under, under repression, so to speak. And I think he brings that to the fore in his films. I mean, he doesn't show things directly. Um, he insinuates or evokes, as you said. And I think, you know, the, the, the Victorian era uh, was the era of the novel. Um, it was a literary, you know, the expression of uh, representation was literary because film had not yet come into being. And I think what Hitchcock did was take some of these uh, ideas and make them visual. So the legacy, uh, Victorian, the Victorian state of mind, so to speak, is there in some of his films, um, this idea of repression. Uh, but he translates it into a, a visual medium and makes it modern um, and, and continues to be uh, compelling to us even now. You said something in the, in the earlier segment about um, 
and you were we were talking about Psycho and Janet Lee and killing her off, and you said something almost in passing about um, Hitchcock and blonde victims. <laughs> what was it <laughs> yes. about? What was it about Hitchcock um, and and blondes? Yeah, I mean they're often referred to as the Hitchcock blonde. Um, he had a female type that he liked to cast. And in many ways, Grace Kelly was the epitome of that. And he was upset when she left to get married to uh, Prince Rainier. But um, I think what, you know, feminists have been very down on Hitchcock about this. But on the other hand, there are ways in which you can say he was looking at the Hitchcock blonde as sort of the epitome of the mainstream sort of idealized American woman um, and that he was exposing or uh, how shall I put it? Putting uh, them at risk. Ri- putting them at risk, showing their vulnerability, showing how the culture focuses on them as some kind of uh, an ideal or uh, uh, some, some kind of ex- exemplar of female femininity and uh, critiquing that at the same time as he's making it, putting it at risk, making it vulnerable. So there is a type that weaves its way through almost all Hitchcock films, um, and it's, it's an interesting expression of um, the way he sees the woman in society, in culture. Um, and I think there, you know, there have been books and books written about this, so there are many viewpoints on what was going on psychologically, sociologically, and so forth. But, um, you know, he, he really was interested in a particular type of woman. And that was the type that was idealized at the middle of the 20th century in America. So he was playing around with that. Barbie dolls. Exactly. I mean, many of these women look like Barbie dolls. Certainly, um, I think, um, Tippi Hedren for example, who Hitchcock was presumably obsessed with, um, and the one woman that he, he presumably abused on the set, um, or she said so. Um, and uh, she was in two films, uh, The Birds and Marnie. Um, and um, she said her career was, was ruined by Hitchcock. But the other women that, that uh, were in his films seemed to have gotten along with him very well, including Grace Kelly, and um, even Marie Saint and others. I remember seeing uh, film clips of interviews that Hitchcock did over the years. Um, mm-hmm. Did he do a lot of interviews? Was he good with the press? Well, he, I think he understood the role of the press in, his, in developing his persona. And he was masterful at that. Um, And he knew how to market his films and market himself. Um, You know, I think he was ahead of the curve in terms of understanding the idea of branding and self-branding, which has become so much a part of today's world. And for young people who think about branding themselves, they could do well to study how Hitchcock presented himself both in his films as we said he appears in his films at some moment uh, almost every film but also in the way he dealt with the press in the way he presented himself in his tv shows 
and um, in all respects, the way he controlled his image. One of the interview clips that that I saw was uh, the the person interviewing Hitchcock said um, uh, brought up something that Hitchcock had said about actors being cattle, and mm-hmm. Hitchcock corrected him and said, "No, I would never say that." He said, "I think what I said was." actors should be treated like cattle. (laughs) That's right. And I think at some point in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is the one film that he made that wasn't a suspense film with Carol Lombard, she brought some cattle onto the set as a joke. But I think that 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 statement was first, maybe it wasn't first made, but famously made in that long, long interview he did with the French critic who became a filmmaker, Francois Truffaut. It was a, I think, like a 50-hour interview that he did that was turned into a book, uh, Truffaut Hitchcock, and uh, where he talks about a lot of his films in great detail, and it became an absolutely seminal text for filmmakers and film students um, as a result. And I think this was in the 1950s, 1960-52, something like that. But it was a very important um, book for uh, this Truffaut Hitchcock, for bringing Hitchcock into a more critically acclaimed as opposed to just a popular uh, audience. Now, we were talking a, a little bit about uh, Hitchcock's fascination with uh, blonde femme fatales, sort of. Um, but... How was Hitchcock's relationship with the actors he worked with, blonde and otherwise? Um, I think he had pretty good relationships with them, with the exception of Tippi Hedren, as I mentioned. But um, his favorite male actors were Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant. And uh, I think Cary Grant would take on roles that were more active and uh James Stewart more reactive um, and of course the famous uh, Stewart role is Rear Window of where he plays a voyeur and he's sort of a surrogate in a way for Hitchcock who's a, who as a filmmaker is always looking and watching and of course in Rear Window James Stewart is, is um, laid up with a broken leg and he has to look out his rear view his rear window and sees what's going on at the apartment house across the way and thinks he sees a murder. It is really a wonderful suspense film. And I think Hitchcock's favorite, my favorite. Well, that was tremendous, as was uh, Vertigo. Vertigo is very disturbing. Um, I mean, I would say Rear Window has its moments, but Vertigo is a really deep film, in my opinion. Um, and it really deals with um, identity and um, gender roles and gender relationships and uh, the way in which society conditions men to think about women. Um, it's, it's, it's quite profound, but it's also really a neat plot. So um, I think it stands up very well. With... In in your research about Hitchcock and and others that you've cited, um, 
do you get a sense for how Hitchcock would like to be remembered? Well, I think he was both surprised and very pleased when the French critics, and that's Truffaut, and the other French critics who wrote for this French journal, Le Cahier de Cinéma, in the 1950s, discovered him and called him an auteur. And that word, auteur in French, meaning author, was the idea that he was responsible for the vision of his film in its entirety. And that was really a new notion because films involve so many people to be made. And of course, the director is the major figure, but not the sole. But the uh, French uh, new critics were arguing, uh, Cahiers critics were arguing that um, he was one of a few directors who was extraordinarily, who's a genius and could, could have this kind of control. And I think he was very pleased to be seen as an artist as opposed to just a popular filmmaker, because he had been sort of dismissed um, by other filmmakers. You know, this was a period when there were highbrow and lowbrow. I mean, that kind of idea was very much in the culture, and he was assigned to doing, you know, suspense and I guess horror uh, in some ways, and that was considered lowbrow. But when the French came up with this notion of him as an auteur, it sort of catapulted him, him into a different area. And I think he became very enamored of the idea of being uh, an artist. And um, I think he was. And uh, probably he felt that he had been unfairly neglected up until that point. So I, I do think he would be very pleased. I don't know how surprised he would be at this point to see that his work lives on and continues to cre uh, encourage the writing of books and articles and uh, examinations of the individual films in depth. How much did Alfred Hitchcock write himself? Uh, we, you know, we, we, I think it's undisputed that he had a tremendous eye and, and vision for how mm -hmm. a film should look and be paced and, and be pieced together. But how much writing did he actually do? It's hard to say. He worked with the writers, and he seems to have been able to put his stamp on the scripts to some extent. But, I mean, he always had writers for his films, but he did sit with them um, for long hours, whether they were actually writing or eating and drinking is another story. But um, he worked with them to create the script that he would be happy with. So we really don't know for sure, uh, you know, how much he wrote. Um, there were famous writers who worked with him and were not particularly happy to work with him. They found him overbearing and so forth. Um, the one exception was Thornton Wilder, who wrote Our Town, that wonderful play, who worked with him on Shadow of a Doubt, and it seems to have been a good alliance. Um, but Raymond Chandler, for example, and I think John Steinbeck also worked with him on films and were not, did not find it a happy experience. So he generally worked with lesser-known people and um, adapt or adapted uh, stories and, and novels that were not very well known, and that seems to have worked well for him. Well, and, and Alfred Hitchcock had a, um, uh, a reputation for being tough on 
crew and actors and writers. It, was that well-deserved? Um, I think he had a notion of what he wanted. And he did have people that he worked with on a fairly continuous basis. So clearly he was able to get along with some people. But uh, he had, a, as, as we said, he had such an idea of what he wanted. Um, and, you know, even for the actors, uh, it could be difficult. He didn't like, for example, the method actors, like Montgomery Clift, who worked on I Confess with him, was a method actor who liked to know what was the motivation of the character and practice it. He wasn't interested in that. He wanted an effect. And he really, and sometimes, you know, he would just take a shot of an actor and put, and slot it in where he wanted it, which really goes against the grain of the kind of method acting that was beginning to be popular then. But he had the vision in his mind's eye, and I, I, I think um, that really does speak to the notion of his role as an auteur. And some people liked it, and some people, some he worked with, didn't. Now, you've written several books on film and and, of course, uh, your novels, too. Um, what, what's next for you? Well, believe it or not, I'm writing a book on conversation. Really? <laughs> Which, really, I could probably interview you for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, I think that it is, uh, not only is it a great joy to converse with people, uh, who want to converse with you. But I think right now in our country, we need conversation more than ever. People are not talking to each other, and that is a real problem. Well, and I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I'm, I'm, I fear that conversation is becoming a, uh, a dying art, and I, I would, I'm happy to do anything to uh, revive especially civilized conversation. Um, Paula, we're almost out of time. and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Uh, Paula, do you have a website? Uh, I have an older website, yes, paulamoranscohen.com, uh, but I can be found on the Internet under my name. Uh, Paula Morantz Cohen. I have a lot of material on the internet, and um, I'm also can be found at Drexel University, where I'm dean of the Pannoni Honors College. Drexel is in Philadelphia, and just to put in a plug for it, since I'm talking about conversation, we have started a center for civil discourse, with the idea in mind that we want to forward this kind of talk across difference where people are civil to each other as opposed to being uh, nasty and vitriolic. Well, so I hope people will visit our website at Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. Well, kudos to you for that, Paula. I couldn't, I couldn't be more supportive. Um, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. And uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Paula Morantz Cohen. She's author of a new book um, called Alfred Hitchcock, The Legacy of Victorianism. And we're going to talk about uh, Alfred Hitchcock and the censors 
next hour. But right now, we're going to take a short break and let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. W.H. Weiskarper, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiskarper, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Weiskarper, 
Wise Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whwisecarver.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. My name is Wednesday. I work out of homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 10.22 a.m. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked her on the 6.14, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 5.03. When I was on my way to the 5.03, a 6.18 came in. I added up the 6.14, the 5.03, and the 6.18. Got 1,735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%. Patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. 11.45 a.m. It happened. I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name? Little Blue Riding Hood. Where are you going, ma'am? Grandma's house. Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket? What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have? No, ma'am. I didn't say that. Then why are you asking me all these questions for? Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am? Be my guest. Let's see. Sawed-off shotgun. Knife. Bludgeon. Box of dum-dum shells. Nothing suspicious here. All right, ma'am, we may want to talk to you later, so don't leave the woods. She skipped on down the path, but she didn't know I'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket. In it, what I'd suspected all along. Goodies. My job, get to Grandma's before she did. I took a shortcut through the strawberry patch. It was sort of a strawberry shortcut. I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell. Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong Grandma. Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head? The sky fell on me this morning. I made a note to book her on the 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the Grandma suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am. Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed? I'm feeling poorly. But, Grandma, what big ears you have. All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am. But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket. All the better to serve you with. But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me. All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your Grandma are operating a goodies ring. A cop. I should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my Grandma. You forgot about the mustache. But I don't have a mustache. I know. But Grandma does. Well, I see you broke the goodies ring. How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank. It was just a hunch. 
I played my luck. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I was just lucky. I just played a hunch, Frank. What you're trying to say, Joe, is you just played a hunch. A lucky guess. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. You just played a hunch. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah. I just played a hunch. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. of today, we're all inclined to miss little things that mean so much, a word, a smile, a kiss. When a woman loves a man, he's a hero in her eyes. And a hero he can always be, if you'll just realize. She may be weary. Women do get weary. Wearing the same shabby dress. And when she's weary, try a little tenderness. You know she's waiting. Just anticipating things she may never possess. While she's without them, try a little tenderness. It's not just sentimental. She has her grief and care. And a word that's soft and gentle makes it easier to bear. You won't regret it. Women don't forget it. Love is their whole happiness. It's all so easy. Try a little tenderness.
Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 